series called Finding Peace in Troubled Times because uh, one of the great promises of the Christmas message, one of the great promises of the manger, which is what we're going to look at today in John 14, is, is the promise of hope and peace no matter what goes on in life. In other words, I've said this before, peace in the Christian faith is not circumstantial. It is not dictated by what is going on in your life. Um, it is truly an unassailable attribute that God hardwires into you when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at a passage over these next weeks. It's John 14, 1 through 3. We'll bounce into, bounce into some other areas. So we won't look at every idea today, but we will begin tackling this idea of what Jesus means when he tells a very troubled group of men to not let their hearts be troubled. And the solution to that troubling is to trust in God and in his name. So that's what we're going to be talking about. We're essentially going to take the promise of the manger and fast forward it to your Tuesday morning where it will likely matter most uh, over these next weeks. And so I want to open with kind of an, an, a natural segue here. If you've, if you've ever asked somebody the question, and you might even answer this right now internally while I'm sharing this with you, what is it that brings you peace in this life? You're going to likely get varying answers. I mean, they will probably be as diverse as the people that you speak to. That said, there are some... I would say common, like thematic, like it's almost guaranteed that uh, the majority of people will adhere to a certain set of things that they feel they cannot have a peace in life without. And I just want to share with you a few. The first would be uh, to have more time. Okay. Now, I did a series on busyness two years ago because this is such a significant issue in our culture. Um, Ten years ago, if you would ask somebody how they were doing, they would say fine. And that was kind of a colloquial way of saying they didn't really want to answer it. Today, people say I'm busy. It's a new norm. Okay. And so time is a precious commodity today. Sometimes it's one that's often squandered. But nonetheless, most people would say if they had more time, they would feel like they have more peace in their life. Uh, they would say things like to feel fulfilled in life. Maybe they're walking around uh, without meaning or purpose. They would say things like to be loved or to find love, to have more money, to, to feel or be accepted by friends and family, to have better familiar relationships, to be successful in a career, to be a better person to be in good health, and the list goes on. Some of these are what we would consider to be common quality of life expectations, okay? So if you think about this, all of these things represent the deeper human need of wanting stability in the most critical areas of life. They're the kind of bedrock that makes life stable. And these answers show us that what people look to in order to find peace and stability, it can be as diverse and often is as diverse as the people themselves. Uh, but the bottom line is for a great many people, they believe if they have these things, their hearts will find rest and a deeper level of peace. And I'm going to say pretty confidently that to a certain degree they can. Now let's just look at some of the examples I just gave you. Uh, it's pretty fair to say that if you have a ton of money, uh, you would have a much better chance of finding peace in all things financial. However, that is not guaranteed because some people with a lot of resource in life, financial resource, still don't have peace. So is there an increased chance? Yes. Is it a guarantee? No. And even if, let's just say, you long for nothing in life financially, the truth is that money and remuneration is just a part of your life. If you had all of the money in the world, that doesn't guarantee peace and stability in other areas of your life, like your health or your relationships. And the same is true with success. That's another big one that you hear today. Some of the most accomplished people often talk about how lonely it can be at the top. That's a very common theme from folks running corporations or businesses. And we even hear it, thank God, not here, but I hear this from church planning pastors a lot, that they feel like they're on an island as they're serving their people. This is true. You might even arrive in life where you want to be, but you don't necessarily have the type of peace you thought that would be associated with it. And while some people can, uh, you have some that have made it and are unhappy, but you also have some that, 
really are living by our current cultural standards of meager existence, yet, yet they have happiness and peace in their life. And so what all of this shows us is there really is nothing we can turn to under heaven that will give us a complete and perfect peace in this life. You can have perfect peace in nine areas of life, and then you get cancer and it all goes south, right? There's no guarantee. So the very nature of the Christmas message and the teachings of Jesus, we will study over these next weeks, are really meant to remind us that life on earth can often be tumultuous. And genuine peace, which sometimes I, w- I think we wish it could be like a commodity in a, in a debit card machine that we could take it out when we are, it's absent in our life. Sometimes it is a commodity that is in short supply. One day you're sailing the tranquil seas of life, and the very next moment you find yourself in the middle of life's raging ocean. And because of this reality, we go to the manger. God sends Jesus to earth. It's one of the main reasons he does. It's not the only reason, but it's a main one. And it's the one that we'll emphasize over these next weeks. God sends Jesus to earth to give us an unassailable hope and peace. And how do we know this? How can we kind of make this statement dogmatically? Well, in John 14, which is what we're looking at today, we fast forward from Jesus' manger to, to study a promise that Jesus gives his disciples. And it really is somewhat of a prescription, a gracious prescription, that teaches us how we can be a people who find and live in God's peace during the seasons of life when there really isn't any. I say this every year when we approach the holiday season. This is a polarizing month of the year. It begins the middle of November because Christmas has this funny, this funny way of, for many of us, it brings back a nostalgia of, of healthiness. We sing songs like this and we're reminded of family dinners and friends. I didn't even grow up as a Christian. I had a quasi plastic religious background for a few years of my life, but for the most part, I grew up in an, un- I didn't, not for the most part, I grew up in an unbelieving household. And I have very pleasant memories for the most part of Christmas growing up. We, even without Christ, it's better now with Him, without question. But where there are some people in our lives, and maybe even your life right now, where when this season hits, you don't actually, that, the happy barometer doesn't go up. Fits of depression come in. Reminders of what you didn't have growing up. Maybe the absence of a parent in a home. Who knows? This is a very polarizing season for people. And it's why a promise like the one we're going to talk about today really matters. Peace is available to us in all seasons of life. And in order for you to experience it, I have to kind of get this first thought out of the way. The first true idea I want to share with you is a sobering one. But in order for us to truly know Jesus' peace, we have to be okay with what I'm about to say. The first thing I want to share with you this morning is this. If you want to experience Jesus' peace, you have to know, you must know, that no one, not you, not me, not anybody, escapes the troubles of life. Uh, Maybe some people have them more aggressively than others, but the truth is, is there is not a single person on earth who in their own way escapes the troubles of life. We have to embrace this. John 14, 1. How do we know this? Jesus speaks to his disciples and tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. And he's saying that because their hearts are troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Very short amount of words that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about over the next three weeks. And Jesus' words here are some of the most pointed in Scripture when it comes to dealing with the troubling times in life. I'll share with you an interesting example. I'm, I'm pastoring now just shy of 20 years. And in my early days of ministry, you know, when somebody asks you to do a funeral or, or a wedding, this is like a new thing. I didn't ever do that before. So I was asked to do a funeral one time in a very difficult situation. It was a, it was a person who had a, a chronic illness for years, and there was pretty much a diagnosis uh, that he had about a year left to live. And so as a result, the family, who was very close with this man, they decided to provide him 24-7 medical care. They basically brought him in home and took care of him until his death. 
And it was a beautiful thing to watch, but it was also a very hard thing to watch because every time I would go into that living room and talk to that family, you knew there was a very, it was just a finite nature to what was happening. The love that this family had for each other and this husband, this father, was, it was a ticking time bomb. It was a clock that was, that was with each passing day shortening. And so the stresses of that year took a really, a very serious toll on the family. And they admitted upon his passing that they were very tired and that they were emotionally beat up. It had been like a long, hard year for them. And in the end, they had lost somebody very, very, very dear to them. That was really, that was really real. And I was incredibly thankful that they shared that with me. But I was as thankful um, with what they shared with me following that. And that was that they told me through that they had gained a new insight into their relationship with Jesus. So here's what I'm saying. They're in the middle of a very difficult circumstance, but God in his goodness and his grace is bringing about his goodness and grace in their lives in the middle of a very troubling time. And they went on to tell me things over the following months like this. They said, you know, these were earthly troubles, okay, that were painful, but it had caused them to turn to Jesus in a way they had never been forced to before. They had to press into something much bigger than themselves at that moment in life. And because of it, they experienced, and if you've ever had this happen in your life, if you have found peace in Christ in troubling times, you know that it's an uncanny, almost somewhat unnatural peace. Um, It's unnatural because it's put in you by God. They experienced a level of Jesus' love that they had never felt before in a season of life that was very difficult. And at the funeral, I chose to read the verses we're studying today. If you've ever been to a Christian funeral, you know, this can be a pretty common passage that is read. And it is not because, like, pastors don't have anything else to say. There's a lot in the Bible we could say. But it is because Jesus' words give us a pretty acute picture of what a person's heart looks like when it is deeply troubled. It's one of the best passages that addresses the grief that comes with losing loved ones. Like, when a heart is deeply troubled... What Jesus addresses here is how he cares for you during those difficult times. When hardship and trial comes, when suffering comes, the promise of the manger, the grown man, Jesus Christ, tells us, listen, this month you will celebrate me as an infant, but you need to know the long-term effects of what my infancy brought to the world are are life-changing, life-altering. And so I cannot stress enough when we talk about this first idea how important it is for us to recognize, this is a foundational statement, how important it is for us to recognize that this promise of not being troubled by turning to Christ, this is a promise of God's love and support that exists for us in the midst of our suffering. It means that no matter what we go through, whether we, we are thankful for the fact that we are in the tranquil seas of life right now, we give thanks to, to the providence of God for that, or whether we are in the middle of the raging storm, we have to know that God is never absent from our lives. When Christ indwells us, he never is absent from our lives. He is present with us in the midst of everything that goes on. And why is this so important to answer or to ask this question? Why is it important to ask how important it is to know that Jesus is with us during suffering? For a very serious reason. There are some Christians, and and you can even hear this in folks who do not even believe in the God of Christianity. When life goes south, they will then evoke these statements. They'll say things like, well, I can't imagine how a... You know how a God could let this kind of stuff happen. You can see the cry of the heart is asking the question that we're about to try to answer. We have to answer this question because some Christians wrongly believe that hardship in life is a sign that God does not love them and and that he is absent from your life. So when it gets bad or when it gets tough, the default position is, well, God is up to something that is not good. That's a problem. Experiences like the one I just shared with you and Christ's undeniable love for his disciples here who have troubled hearts in this passage show us that this is not true. In fact, a teaching like this shows us that it's quite the opposite. 
So if you have ever spoken to somebody who has been in the faith for some time, what we would call a mature Christian, who has endured earthly trouble, trial, or suffering, you've probably noticed a radically different perspective in them. They wear a different set of lenses as they view stuff. They don't have any, any different feelings that we do. It's not like they don't suffer and get hurt and grieve. It's just that they approach them differently, those feelings. To them, the Christmas promise of hope and peace takes on a very experiential meaning. And I mean that in a very theologically sound way. There is an emotional reality, a spiritual reality, a physical reality that belief in promises like the ones we're studying over these next week are supposed to bring about in your life. I say this anytime we talk about knowledge in this room. The Hebrew understanding of knowledge is that it shapes experience. So, so when the, the Old Testament writers of God speak about God, they're not just bombarding us with factual information about God. I guess at the very root of what those things are, they are facts. But they are facts that, when embraced by the human heart, shape life. They make us different. And this is one of those places where... The end game, you might even say the way we live, is going to validate how deeply we understand, affirm, or believe these types of promises. And so folks that, that taste the honey in this area, they learn to sing a different song during the season of trial. They say things like, yeah, my troubles were difficult. Uh, they broke me at one point. That's very common. They'll say things like, there were days that I wanted to give up. There were days when I, wore, I was, wasn't sure I wanted to even go on. They, they recognize the grief, and they're not shy about sharing it. However, with hindsight and perspective, they also recognize that, that God has an uncanny ability to make an invaluable contribution to our lives during those issues. He is able to make good on the promise of peace when it seems like there is not going to be any in our life today or maybe even ever. And that's why they start to say other things like, the days were hard, but I wouldn't trade that. Some of us can look back on hardships in life, and I don't know that we would want to endure them again, but they have made us who we are today. They have created an experience in our lives that God, God literally reached his hands into our chest and masseused our hearts into a deeper and more robust image of him. They make us some of who we are today. Now hear me. It is obviously very easy to talk about these things when you are not in the valley of trouble. But the truth is that this is somewhat of a discipline that you have to embrace when you are not enduring hardship so that you can evoke it when you are. Because when you get to the other side of the valley of, of hardship, you often begin to see those troubles as a necessary nutrient that help to grow your spiritual maturity in God. And after God makes good on his Christmas promise, the great, one of the greatest is hope and peace. The Advent candles begin to symbolize this. They, they literally talk about ways that God lights up the darkness of the world. There are places where it's just dark and dingy, and the elements of who Jesus is, he begins to light those shadows up, right? It's the beauty of the symbolism of Advent. What we're talking about today is what happens when he lights up suffering in your life and hardship. When he does that, when he makes good of the Christmas promise, verses like James 1, 2 through 4 begin to make a new kind of sense to our hearts, and they also begin to make us into a new kind of people for God. This is the point of what I'm saying, is that belief in these things truly begins to shape who we are. James 1, 2 through 4. It'll be behind me. Read along. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, and there's all kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In that verse, God tells us through James that the suffering can actually become something good, that the promise of the manger can actually, it can redeem all the stuff that really pains us in life if we will let Christ do it. 
So listen to me. If the only Christmas gift you're asking for this year is to find peace in your life again, it's crucial, cru crucial for you to know. If you believe God is absent from the times of your life that are peaceless, that are without peace, or that every hardship in your life is something God did to you because he's cruel, you know, he's just bored and wants to torment you on a Wednesday, you'll never find peace. That is actually a sign that you don't trust in the promises. And I want to say this, the nature or the character of God, the assumption in, we, in the way that we view these things, cause doubt unto the credibility and the truthfulness of who our God is. And furthermore, if that is the posture we have, if that's how we interpret this stuff and look to God as if he is malevolent in these areas, it is just about guaranteed that a lack of trust and belief in God like that, for the Christian, I'm talking to those of you following Jesus right now, it's just about guaranteed that a lack of trust and belief in God like that is the source of why you have an anxious and troubled heart. You've unplugged from the, the outlet of peace. You might even wrongly interpret and miss out on the blessing of a troubling time because you are not privy to the whole picture of what God is doing in his kingdom and in your life. He might have a reason that stuff is happening in your life, a purposeful one for your good. Just look at our text, right? The main source of the disciples' troubled hearts in John 14 is, is because they now know Jesus is about to leave them. What they haven't realized yet, we know this, and we'll sing about this in Easter, but try to immerse yourself in the upper room of the disciples right now. He's gone, dead and risen. We, this is a great thing for us. But in this passage, what's happened is they are petrified. Jesus just literally told them, like, I'm, i got to leave you guys. It's been a great three years, but I'm out. They don't even know what that means yet. But he's going to die very soon, right? He, and what they don't see is that his, his departure is for a reason. This is what Jesus hits on in the back end of verse 3. He's talking about leaving and going to prepare a place for them. We won't look at that today. We'll get to that next week. But he's saying, like, I got to go, and I have to go for a good reason. And trust me, if you can see the purpose in me leaving you now, you will not trade what is about to happen. Because the long-term benefit of, of you being with my Father in heaven for all of eternity, you would not trade the upper room for what I'm about to give to you on the cross. Their troubled hearts stem from the fact that they do not fully understand, and I would dare to say, because I'm a human like them, that they didn't even agree with what Jesus was about to do. Why would Jesus leave them at the pinnacle of him spreading his kingdom? It makes no logical sense, right? They had a real, think about this from the angle of the disciples, they had a real and immediate need in their life. And Jesus met those needs on a regular basis. And it looked like the way Jesus was responding to their needs at this point, like their relational, emotional needs, was to leave them. And so Jesus' timely words in verse 1 show us that the disciples, just like our hearts are at times, are filled with uncertainty, confusion, restlessness, fear of the unknown, and even doubt. That's the... That's the byproduct of troubles left unchecked. And if we sink ourselves into the story, we can see why. Why they feel this way. Just like in our lives today, trouble sneaks up on the disciples when they least expected or wanted to. You tell me the last time you got a group text when life was about to go south for you. It doesn't happen that way, does it? You don't get the email notification. You know, you don't get the mail, the letter in the, in the mailbox. You are just doing something at 3.30 on Tuesday, and at 3.45 on Tuesday, something happens. That's how it works. And you think about this. Think about this from the angle of the disciples. Up until a short time ago, this is a unified group of men doing their best to follow Jesus. They're making a ton of mistakes and screwing up a lot, but they're experiencing Jesus' grace as they do it. And these are people who in perfect ways are trying to follow God. They enjoy this amazing bond with Christ and the communal nature of each other. If you want to know why one of the values of Restoration Church is authentic community, it's because their love for Jesus creates a love for each other. That's why we are who we are as a church. It's, it drives everything we do. 
And so these guys are living the high life. They are on the back end of the Christmas promise. They've heard this stuff, and they've not had to experience what this stuff means in their lives yet, at least in this way. And so they're, they're loving Jesus, deeply sharing their lives with each other and Jesus. Life's good, and they sit down to have supper together one evening. And then to their surprise, they watch their whole world fall apart. They're eating supper, and stuff goes really south. First, Judas betrays Jesus. Like, pass the bread, betrayal, going to sell Christ out. Then, a short time later, they, they see Jesus rebuke Peter because of his spiritual arrogance. This is the A-team right here, right? Peter learns the hard way that it is easy to live for Jesus amongst believing friends. It's easy to do it in the community group, right? But it's much more difficult to do it when you are before the angry mobs. And what happens here is some of these men following Jesus, Peter particularly, recognizes what Jesus told him earlier. There's a cost to following me, and there might be times when you might have to cash it in. And so after Judas, right, Peter becomes the first disciple to publicly deny Jesus. Over the course of a meal, essentially, two of the twelve are down. And the rest will immediately run for their lives. That's what happens after this. They're going to scatter because people are about to hunt Jesus. I want you to think about this. For those of you that are engaged very deeply in a community group, if you're not in a community group, this might be a little bit of an esoteric or an itchy piece of information. But if you're engaged in a community group, which is a very strong ministry at our church here, you have developed, likely developed bonds with people in Jesus that it's going to be very hard to just develop a bond with here on Sunday. Amazing things happen here on Sunday. But you cannot develop the kind of communal relationship on a, on a 65-minute worship service or in a worship service that you can on a, on a night when you're loving each other and serving your community and studying the Word, right? So think about this. Think about you show up to church, or particularly your community group, and you go and say, like, hey, man, it's Tuesday. I'm going to get some free chili. Second Tuesday of the month, we do free chili, right? Chili night. And you show up, and you find out that one of your most committed friends just betrayed the leader of your group, right, and, and is about to take his own life, and you had another person, like your group leader, is now a Buddhist. You showed up waiting to get a Christian teaching and a free bowl of chili, and somebody's about to die, and your leader's a Buddhist. Things change very radically in over the course of 30 minutes, right? We would say that's an undoubtedly hard surprise. The stability of the Christian bubble at that point gets rocked. And that's what happens in these disciples' lives. Their world gets rocked. And that is the point of what I'm saying today. It's part of pursuing Jesus is that we need to know and be okay that the boat is going to rock sometimes. In fact, sometimes the rocking of the boat is what God uses to move his kingdom forward. All of the stability and the comforts they had grown accustomed to are about to be taken away from them. And they are now faced with a serious choice, the one we're studying over this next month. Will they trust Jesus' promises to be at peace? Will they recognize the lights of Advent despite what's happening in their lives? Or will they allow themselves to be broken under the weight of their troubles by doubting? Now, again, mentally, this is an easy question to answer. If your CG leader is not a Buddhist and you're eating free chili, it's a good day if that works out that way, right? If Jesus doesn't have to go and die, things are sensible and logically okay. However, emotionally speaking, when your world is falling apart, it can be a very different story. And this leads me to the second peace truth I want to share with you this morning. The first one is simply put, we have to... You have to have a theology of understanding what God does through hardship and trial. We have to know that it is inevitable it will come. And that part of the manger gives us some ammunition to deal with it. But you also have to know, and this is kind of where the responsibility to the promise comes into play, sort of what we have to be willing to do to experience it, 
If you want to experience Jesus' promise of peace, then you must trust him with every area of your life. And that's, the, that's what the verse says. John 14, 1 says, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's what we just talked about. And then Jesus said, hey, the solution to this is you've got to trust in me. You've got to trust in God. You have to, you've got to look away from circumstance to me. So Jesus is saying here, I think something pretty interesting. Um, and I think that we can, we can say this pretty accurately. Here Jesus is saying sometimes a troubled heart isn't an exception to the rule of life. That's how most of us look at it. We tend to think life should be very easy, and on occasion we deal with something rough. But that's not always our story. Sometimes a troubled heart isn't an exception to the rule of life. There are seasons where it seems like the rule, where it seems like there's nothing but trouble trouble times. Now, when we speak about trusting Christ like this, Jesus, this is a command. He's telling us to do this. But it's also much more than just a command meant to be followed during the hardships of life. It's also a discipline that has to be practiced when there is no severe crisis. And this is true of most of the great disciplines of the faith. We tend to cannonball into the pool of Jesus when things get difficult. But the truth is that peace is not something we should just pursue in Christ when we are without it. Peace is something, it's a promise we should be living in on a daily basis. We should be turning to Jesus for peace all of the time, not just when life gets difficult. And there's an important reason for that. When we do not, if we kind of see Jesus as a 911 call, we are very likely to trade peace in God for anxiety and a troubled heart. There is no spiritual muscle memory to deal with this stuff. The bottom line in all of this is a very simple one. If we did not need Jesus to get through life, then God would not have sent him to us. You're probably not going to read that in a theology book anyway, but it's pretty practical, right? If we didn't need Christ, God is infinitely wisdom and perfect at what he does, then this would be a big waste of time for him. But it isn't. There's a reason why we celebrate this. There's a reason why God sent his son to the earth for us. There is a purpose for it. In fact, I can confidently say that our church is in one of these trial seasons right now. If you've been with us in the beginning, you know, man, this has been an amazing six years. But we've had no shortage of challenges that we deal with. You know, in the very early days of restoration, I'm talking about year one, it was very common for people to ask all these detailed questions about our future. And, and a lot of times, if you know me, I'm like super strategic and thought out. And like I have like on my calendar, like when to buy shoes and I'm planned out to like ridiculous inklings. I mean, I am so calendared because I, I live by the schedule. I really do. And, and that kind of planning and preparation really, really matters to me. But there were times when people would ask us questions like, well, what, what about this or what about that? And we couldn't answer those questions. And it wasn't because we weren't thinking or praying about them. It's just that in life, sometimes there are not answers to the questions we're asking. Sometimes we have to process that stuff. There were many things we just didn't know. And there were also times when some matters were entirely out of our control. There was no way of having an answer because it was just unknown. God never really gave us a manual that laid out every detail of the first six years of our church. And he has not given us a manual to lay out every detail of the next five years of our church. And I think one of the obvious parallels for us right now is that for the better part of a year, we've been you know, looking for a permanent facility to meet in. And we haven't really been able to locate one. It isn't like we're not looking. It's just that there hasn't been anything that, that meets our needs as far as enhancing our ability to serve our city and, and, and it being fiscally responsible, meaning we don't want to bankrupt ourselves, nor do we want to do something that, that disadvantages our ability to do good mission and ministry. So you should know, just being pretty honest, sometimes that keeps me up at night. Like, that's not the way I want this to be right now. And who knows, maybe it'll be different in a year, but for this day, it's this. And so situations like this, I like to call them the seasons in life, you're probably going to resonate with this, where you kind of feel like you're doing all the right things, but you're not really getting the results you want. That is what we're talking about today. The disciples were doing all the right things. And at this point in their lives, the results were not what they thought. 
sometimes we go through life doing the right things. You can like go through every verse and say, I'm doing this with a good heart. I'm doing this with a good heart. I'm doing this for other people with a good heart. You checked all the lists and your life is still hard. And that is where the rubber meets the road of what we're talking about today. That is where your faith really becomes real. It becomes an exercise in making the daily and sometimes hourly decision of allowing our hearts to be troubled because we don't have all the details about our current or future circumstance. Or we can choose to trust that God is in control of our circumstances, that he has promised to navigate us through them and never leave us through those times of uncertainty. In other words, even when you and I do not know our future, our Father in heaven does. That's the, that's the whole piece. What's tomorrow hold? For some of us, we, we might not even know what the next hour holds. But the future of our lives, God does know. And here's what is most ironic about this situation, what we're talking about here. You are going to find in life that this, this is why I tried to normalize this in the first thing we talked about. This thing that I'm talking about here, wanting more detail than you have, is the norm of life. In life, you will almost always find yourself in this position. You will always be wanting to know more about tomorrow than there is available to know about tomorrow. Sometimes that picture is clearer than we expect, but other times it's not clear at all. And think about how your life looks at times. You go through a major issue. You figure out problem A. You assign a, a detail to problem A in your head right now, whatever you're dealing with. You get that figured out, and then all of a sudden, problem B arises. Sometimes they overlap. And then as problem B is getting addressed, you're like, oh, man, problem C is brewing over here, right? You, it's, it's like whack-a-mole. Stuff just starts popping up. Because life is often highly unpredictable. It makes sense that trusting in Jesus is not the kind of thing we just do on a one-time basis. This has been the great failure point of evangelical Christianity over the last hundred years. You may take this for what it's worth. It's my opinion. Is that we have just told people to believe in Jesus to get to heaven. And we have failed to tell people that belief in Jesus is a perpetual thing. It's an everyday thing. Yeah, you, you trusted him one time for your salvation. But you return to his promises every minute of your life to experience them. So in this sense, the gospel is both what redeems us and sustains us. This is what Jesus says here. It's an every hour, every minute thing you do. So you are physically, spiritually, and emotionally prepared for uncertainty when it undoubtedly comes. Each day you live has the real possibility of presenting you with new challenges that can cause you to ask the question, what am I going to turn to to find peace in this situation, whatever it is? And I share with you very honestly, the, the most sticking point with me on this one was when my six-year-old was, became a type 1 diabetic. You want to talk about your world falling apart? That's one. That can't, I can't put that on my calendar. Like I, I didn't have a journal entry to prepare for that. It just happened, right? What am I going to do to find peace in this situation? One of the tools that has helped me over the years to answer this question is a teaching found in Genesis 12.1. This is how we'll start wrapping up today. Genesis 12.1 uh, is a great example because it's actually a, what I would call a life verse for me. It's a verse that perfectly captures the reality of what we're speaking about here. And I want to encourage you to memorize it and meditate on it. It's in Genesis 12.1. This is before we even have Jesus, way before, right? You can see that God is preparing the hearts of his people for the reality of what Jesus is going to solve for us. In Genesis 12.1, God is speaking to Abram. This is before there's an Israel or a promised land or anything. This is just essentially... A guy living in the Middle Eastern woods. He's a, he's a tribal guy named Abram, right? Nomadic. And he says this to him. The Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, Abram's life is often how following God is. Uh, you know something about your situation, but never anything. Go to the place I'm going to show you. 
And Abram's, Abram's life, he knows he's being called by God to leave his country. He's got some pretty clear details. Get up and go. That's pretty obvious. And you can do that, right? But the details of where he's going and what's happening after that are not revealed. Regardless, though, we see him turn to God and follow him the best he can with what he knows. In other words, the, the, great, the great takeaway from the story of Abram is that at this season in his life, he seems to be a guy who, who spends his energy focusing on what God has revealed to him and not on what he has and not revealed to him. And because of that, he's able to act. It's a perfect example of what it means to have faith in your God. And consequently, Abram has a peace in his heart to follow God's call without all the details. Imagine if, if God said to you tomorrow night in your room, get up and go someplace. Sell your house. I'm going to tell you when on Wednesday, where you're going on Thursday. That'd be a very difficult thing to do. But that's what's happening here. He's trusting the God who has the details. And it would be very natural for his heart to be troubled by what he does not know. It is very natural for us to be troubled by what we do not know. I like to say humans, we desire to dwell in the darkness. We, we, we want to focus on the mystery. And mystery is a beautiful part of life. But if you try to focus all on the dark of what you can't see, you're going to go crazy. That's what happens. Living like this is futile because there will always be more things in life. If you were to sit down and write down what you know about your life right now and what you, what you should know about your, your life over the next 40 years, I promise you that second list will be longer. The normalcy of life is that there's going to be more you don't know. So you've got to ask yourself a logical question. Do you want to spend your days dwelling in the darkness or focusing on the light? And I would encourage the light because there's no crystal ball in life. In Abram's case, once he finds out where he's going, he could have started stressing about how he was going to get there and build the nation, fulfill the promise God said was going to come out of him. But he doesn't. And that is where we can learn something. When troubles and uncertainty like Abram's come to us, there is a list of usual suspects we turn to for relief. There is almost always a hardwired way you are, you, you already have a discipline very likely for this. The question is whether or not it is the one God wants you to have. So some of us try to control circumstances. And if you realize circumstances are bigger than you, the tentacles of your hands can only go so far. And then you get angry when you realize you can't. Some of us try to, control, uh, to escape those circumstances. You know, we, we, we proverbially bury our head in the sand. But remember, as your head is in the sand, life continues to evolve around you. It doesn't change or go away. And when you pull your hand out, that stuff is still there. Sometimes we fret about the future and blame God because it just really feels good to have somebody to blame. Scapegoats are great in life. It brings purpose to your pain, your fault, right? That, that might satisfy the, the insatiable flesh at times, but it doesn't bring peace to the heart. It just is going to jade us towards whatever we point the finger towards. Friends, family, loved ones, Jesus. Others turn to people. You know, we, we say, you need to be Jesus in my life. My dad, my sister, my brother, my, my wife, my kids. I need you to be Jesus for me right now. And then they disappoint us when we realize they can't do that. Because, again, Jesus didn't send your wife or your kid, your family members to the earth to redeem you. He sent his son. So, so the, the weight of that, it needs to be on his shoulders. But see, Christ pursues us to call peace in a different way. By turning to and trusting in him. By bringing our doubt to him and letting him deal with that. By knowing it's okay to have doubt. Because trusting in him is the only cure for a troubled heart. And he's the only one that can bear the weight of that responsibility. That is why God sent his only son to earth. And that's why we celebrate this this month. So today, if you find yourself here without peace, ask God to help you believe more thoroughly. Ask him to help you trust him more radically, to rest in him more unreservedly, to rely on Christ more completely. These are, these are mental attitudes that God has to fill in the gaps on. He's got to help your heart get to these places. But you're never going to get there if you don't recognize there's a lack of this in your life, if there is. And you, you honestly bring that to him. 
God sent Jesus to the earth to be much more than a season of gift giving and Christmas decorations. I mean, don't get me wrong. We embrace wholeheartedly the nostalgia of this season. We got a Christmas tree back here. You know, we're, we're good with this stuff. We have uh, uh, we decorate our home and we're going to basically sing Christmas songs to the whole city today. We love the the aesthetics, if you will, of the season. I do. But don't let the aesthetics blind you or the root of what the season really represents. The baby in the manger becomes a grown man named Jesus Christ. And in John 14, we see the reality of what the manger means. He's, in this case, he's given you everything you need to experience peace in troubling times. So you've got to receive that. You've got to rest in that. And you have to know if you are restless today, and if you're not today, you will be sometime tomorrow, you know, proverbially speaking, you trade restlessness for peace by turning to Jesus. That is the swap. So as we close today, ask yourself, think of this. This is what I want you to pray about during our response time. Is your life defined by turning to and trusting Jesus? Or is it in a constant state of troubled anxiety? No matter where you fall on that spectrum, Jesus' promise of peace can give you peace for the first time. Or it can deepen the sense of peace you already have. If you, if you are a person who experiences peace, recognize the grace in that and, and ask God to preserve it. You don't want to lose that one day. If you come to this place with a troubled heart, know that God doesn't want you settling for a measure of peace. He doesn't want you partially receiving peace by trusting in some of those things we talked about earlier, that list we opened with. They're good things, but they're not ultimate things because those things on their best day can't satisfy you like Jesus will. If that was the case, God would have sent a job to the manger. He would have sent success to the manger. He didn't send that stuff. He sent Jesus because he can cover all those gaps when you are not successful and are having difficulties in the family life. It is then Jesus says, I I got this for you. Because I am bigger than all of these things. That's why he doesn't say trust in that stuff. He says, if you're troubled, trust in me. Trust in my father. And he says this to the disciples in their hour of need. And he is saying this to you right now. Whether or not you can hear it is another story. If you open the ears of your heart, you will hear that Jesus will whisper this promise to you every day of your life for the rest of your days. He's been doing that with his people for millennia. And he will do it until he returns. So this Christmas season, think about this. Scripture calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. And all I'm asking you to do this morning is ask yourself if you really believe that. Is that some stained glass ornament you hang on your tree? Or does that really matter in your life when things get difficult? Are you believing in peace to the point that you're experiencing it? As we move into response time, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about his peace? And what is it that you're going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the season of Christmas and all that it means. And thank you most of all for, for truly what Christmas is ultimately about. And that is the beginning of you breaking into the world and offering humanity a relationship of love, truth, and grace that has never been seen before. And so I pray today, God, that, that no matter how we've come into this place, we would absolutely leave it knowing that you love us and care for us, that you are our God, and that you want us to... You you want us to experience in full the truth and the light of Advent, the coming of your son Jesus. And I pray now that as we take just a couple of quiet minutes to pray, respond, and reflect on what we have heard today, that you would just write these truths concretely into the tablets of our heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.